you're listening to the Degrees of Freedom podcast. Conversations about higher education in the 21st century between students and teachers. Produced at the University of Groningen. Welcome to another episode of Degrees of Freedom. This is season three. I don't know how we made it to season three, but here we are. I'm still Tasso Sarampalis, and there's been some changes in the in the shop. Um, as is customary every at the beginning of every season, there's a new co-host, but I'm hoping this is possibly the last time in a while, because sitting next to me, to my left today, on the control panel, so it means I'm a little bit more free today than usual, is Marcello Seri, and we know Marcello from a previous episode in Degrees of Freedom, actually one of my favorite episodes. Marcello, welcome to Degrees of Freedom from the driver's seat. Thank you very much, Tassos. It's my pleasure, actually, to be here as a host. When I was here as a guest, I was super excited as a fan of the podcast, so I still can't believe I'm here sitting. It's very nice because it puts me out of my comfort zone as a mathematician. I'm here talking about education, but yeah, I'm an educator as well, so perhaps I'm kind of in the right place. I think the point is that education puts all of us outside of our comfort zone, and this is something I value tremendously. Um, today, speaking of things that uh, we value a lot, today we're picking up a topic that's been on our minds for a while. This is uh, the work of Paulo Freire and the topic of critical pedagogy. And with us to discuss this topic is uh, Marco Carvalho Fillo, who is he's a man with, um, with a lot of roles through his life, uh, started his career as a physician, as a doctor in Brazil, and is now, well, moved on to be an educator and is now a researcher in educational scholarship and in education in general. Marco, welcome to Degrees of Freedom. It's really good to see you here. Let me start right to the core of the topic. Who was Paulo Freire? Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to be here. I'm very happy and excited to have that conversation. And this question is a tricky question because you want to know about uh, Paulo Freire the idea or Paulo Freire the person. What, what do you have in your mind? So this already uh, is, um, is indicative of the complexity or the, the beauty of this issue. The fact that Paulo Freire was both a person and an idea. So I guess we want to hear about both. Initially, I meant who was the person Paulo Freire and what yeah. was his work on, but uh, indeed um, he was as much an idea as an individual. Yeah. I think Paulo Freire was a person who, who could not stop in front of any kind of oppression, and I think that was the drive that moved him along his life. So he, I think he studied to be a lawyer, but in the middle of the way, he decided to become an educator. He started working in the countryside of Pernambuco, which is a very, uh, it's a, yeah, it's very poor area in, in Brazil. And he, start, he started his uh, method that was called the Paulo Freire method, trying to, 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 to improve the literacy of the people who were living in those uh, areas. What year are we talking about? What decade are we talking about? Just to um, give the context. Yeah, we're talking about the late 50s. Yeah, yeah. And I think that from that point, he had that insight about the, the importance of contextualizing education in a socio-economic and, and political uh, system and how we were at that point not able to do that. Well, to be honest, I'm not sure if you're already doing that, but... 
but his main drive was to, to help us to understand that ed education is situated in a socio-political economic context. And at that point, uh, the access to education was increasing in Brazil, but the, the, the education that was being delivered to the people, it was a kind of education to, 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 for them to become followers of something. So industrial revolution in Brazil started in the 30s and 40s. So people were being educated to become, I don't know, employees on, on, those, on those companies. And, and Paulo Freire started a movement to, to, to reframe education in a different way, to bring education. So I think it's important now to talk about the Paulo Freire, this idea. And the idea is, is how Paulo Freire conceptualized education. So for, for Paulo Freire, education was a process of developing critical consciousness, which is a capacity for us to understand the different forces that are acting upon us to the point that we become able to modulate that process and to achieve what he would call uh, liberation. And so liberation is this uh, situation where you have freedom of choice, that you are able to reflect on the things that you that you that are acting uh, upon you, uh, and that you become and, and you can develop what he called full citizenship, that you can really reflect on what's going on with you in society. So education is a process of creating the conditions for people to achieve that state of full citizenship. When I've read the first time, uh, the only time I've read it, in fact, The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, the yeah. book by Paulo Freire, I didn't know in which historical period this was being written. And yeah. it felt uh, pretty much adapted also to our period. But I'm curious to know a bit more what the socio-economical and political context uh, in which Paulo Freire developed his ideas uh, was similar and different to uh, the current one. Well, the Pedagogy of the Oppressed was written during the military dictatorship in Brazil that was from 64. Uh, then we had an indirect election, but I think this political period goes from 64 to 89, to be honest. And those were difficult times for the Brazilian population because we had an increasing social inequality. We did not have freedom of speech. A lot of uh, scholars had to leave the, the country. So we had one of the biggest uh, brain uh, losses in our history because most of the academics were left wing and they had to, to flee the country. This is something that happened, through, that happened throughout Latin America. We now know that most of it was funded by the, the, the US, U.S. intelligence service. They had a big role on, on making it happen, those uh, dictatorships in, in South America. They were afraid, the Americans were afraid with the communist expansion because after the Cuban uh, revolution. And there were a series of scholars in Brazil that uh, were part of the resistance to that movement, and, and Paulo Freire is one of them. But I think he, he, to understand oppression in Brazil is not only the political oppression related to the dictatorship. It's also something, it's a price that we still pay from slavery. So Brazil was the last country to prohibit uh, slavery. And we, we received the biggest amount of slaved people in the world, the, the African slaves, right? And that was a Portuguese invention, that be, becoming a slave based on your race. So all those people, when slavery was finally ended in Brazil in the end, in the end of the 19th century, 
these amounts of people, they were abandoned in, inside the country. So they took for them too long to be able to have uh, social representation or to have a social voice. And so oppression in Brazil is related to the dictatorships, uh, the political oppression, but we have a social oppression going on since the, the, the European invasion in, in, in the 1500s, right? We, st we, we, st we are still a country that has a part of the population that can everything and a part of the population that, that cannot. So I think the pedagogy of the oppressed is situated in that context, that Brazil needs to move away from that situation where a part of the population does not have the same value of the minority who is in, who is in power. Does it make sense? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I can actually see it in what I remember from the book, this discussion about the powerful minority that somehow controlled the rest of the population and the population is so used to it yeah. that they don't even realize that this is going on. Yes. So that's why, that's why I think the concept of liberation is so beautiful because it's, it's, a, it's like you are waking up from this big sleep that you have been sleeping for 500 year, years. And then you wake up and you say, okay, I have a value, I have a social value. But it's not about only about you waking up, it's about what you're going to do for more people to wake up and to understand that you need to have a voice and you need to have a social political influence. And then education is situated in that context. And education has a side, right? And that's not the side of the minority that is in power. So this is also very relevant in Paulo Freire's uh, work. Uh, the way you deal with power, you should not reproduce those structures of oppression as a teacher. I think one of the one of the barriers maybe to put a, a little bit of context we recently a couple of months ago had a, a small book club on the pedagogy of the oppressed i remember both for myself but also for uh, other people in the book club having a certain degree of hesitation about the terminology of the uh, education of the oppressed living in circumstances where i think a lot of us would not use the word oppressed or um, enslaved in a daily context and certainly not in an educational context. It was an interesting beginning to our discussion to contextualize what we mean by oppression and who is oppressed and uh, who is the oppressor. Is there a way to contextualize it to, let's say, the present day and the, the locality of uh, a Dutch educational system that makes more sense to those who are listening? I think that uh, <clears throat> Paulo Freire would define oppression as any force internal or external that it's that is acting upon you preventing you to be or become what you want to be or become that is the definition of oppression for for paulo freire and i think that education in itself when you take a kid and this kid needs to live in society of course you have to learn to modulate yourself in several ways but i think that a good way of doing that is allowing the person to be reflective about the process and having ownership and making their all informed decisions about who they want to be and who they want to become. If I look at the Western society in general, because I'm placed here so I cannot talk about other societies, but I lived in Brazil, I lived in Portugal, in the Netherlands, I have some collaborations in the US. 
I do see those forces everywhere, at work, inside the classroom, outside the classroom. I, uh, I am an educator in the healthcare system. I, I don't remember the last time a patient came to me and said, oh, Marco, I had a great experience with the healthcare system. It's so nice. I can go there. I can talk about whatever I want. I have those lovely people looking at me and paying attention to my problems. So I, th I think we are still living that, that, that kind of oppression everywhere. But because we are not liberated ourselves, we are not completely aware of those forces, then we go with the flow as... This is the status quo, we cannot change. So when I moved here, I was, I was not able to understand clinical consultations of 10 minutes. Then I was expecting that people would be very reflective about that, but they are not. And I, I, I come from an educational system that you are all the time reflecting on the boundaries that are imposed to yourself. So when in the first week of medical school back in Brazil, uh, we would say to the, to the students, you know, we have a responsibility here. You are part of that responsibility. We have a healthcare system to build. We don't have universal access. We still have lots of racism. And this is our problem. And my question to you is how we are going to help to build that system. So this reflection at the systemic level, on the systemic level was all the time there. And here, sometimes I miss this engagement with this level of reflection. So what's the purpose of the university? Why we are here? So education starts with a purpose, right? Why, why we are here? And I engage in several conversations, and sometimes I, I miss this step of reflecting on the purpose. Why, why we are doing our jobs every day? So if you're, if you're coming to work and you do not know the why, I'm sorry, but you're being oppressed. You are not completely free. One could argue that also if you know why you're doing it, you might still be oppressed. I really like what you say because, on, I don't know, I still see somehow a tension between uh, what I remember of the university 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and uh, what I'm living in the university now, for example. When I was a student, most of the lecture were top-down lecture in which a professor would go at the blackboard and instill knowledge in me. And in Italy, we didn't even have that many homeworks, so we didn't have any concept of tutorial. So it was really up on us in most courses to do the exercises and to just figure things out. And perhaps some of us would do it together, and then it would be a dialogue, but it's mostly absorbing uh, projecting knowledge. Yet over the last, uh, possibly the last decade or even less, I've seen a lot of push into having the education become more active and uh, putting more the focus on the student and putting more the ownership, as you said, of the education to the student, which is hard because we have been trained and we are used to a completely different system because the way our university and our evaluations, everything is structured, is still uh, somehow uh, indoctrinated and entangled to that way of, uh, of doing education. But yet I see this tension. Is this some result of actually this philosophy of Paulo Freire and this movement to free uh, from power struggle in many different places in society? Is this something else? Is this just my impression from my limited view of the system from mathematics? I think, if, if you allow me to, to comment, I think there was a big democratization of the educational process. I do agree with you. 
the process of education is more democratic right now. There was this concern about small group learning, making the process very explicit to students, openness to get feedback from the students. But I don't think the same democratization happened at the level of the content of education or of the purpose of education. Mm -hmm. So we do have student participation inside the classroom if you do that right, okay? We still have several classrooms <laughs> that students are not participating, but we do have this idea or this understanding that we need to increase student participation inside the classroom. But when it comes to participation at the level of content, when it comes to participation at the level of finding a common purpose, a shared understanding of where this field is going, then I don't think we are mm -hmm. there yet. I was going to saying the same thing but probably less eloquently it, it seems to me that a, a lot of levels of education but certainly higher education has always been very expertise focused not student focused and seemingly it's always been teacher focused but actually i realize that it's more expertise focused it's not even teacher focused what is that expertise that we can transmit it's often that uh, you, you you i think you use that word marcello you you teach at people you direct you communicate an expertise and knowledge and that is the end all and be all of it and indeed i i i see what you're saying mark on a on a on a lot of levels there is engagement between students and teachers and administrators on structural matters and there's feedback and there's evaluations and there's a lot of discussion whether this is in fact active reflection and open reflection and vulnerable reflection or simply another bureaucratic tool for covering bases and ticking boxes i don't know that's a different discussion perhaps but certainly on the level of content there's a lot of tension when experts or teachers are are tasked with deciding or opening up the the field of decision making on the content with others yeah I, so the the most famous book of paulo freire's pedagogy of the oppressed uh, but if you go to his late work that was called Pedagogy of Freedom, so this book is a book about faculty development. And to be honest, I love this book because it connects to us as teachers or what, what kind of teacher you want to become in that process. And one of the things that he, he, he wrote in these books that if you are teaching and you are not being transformed by the act of teaching, you are not really teaching yet. So education is a, is a process that trans should transform both realities, the reality of the student and the reality of the teacher. But he wrote that book at a personal level, right? An interpersonal relationship. So if we take the next step and take it to the institution or to the systemic, so if the students are the newcomers to the academic life or to academic group, we should be open to be transformed by them at a personal level as a person. I was transformed by my students. I was educated in a very sexist uh, environment, violent, and I learned from my students how to be a different person. So I was deeply influenced by them to the point that they changed my identity. So that is the level of openness that Paulo Freire was, was, was talking about. But I think that the next step in that system is how we as university or we as acad academia, how can we open ourselves to be transformed and renewed by the input of our students, 
Are we, are we even thinking of it? What kind of contribution the students could give to the improvement of that system? I'm not sure. You talk about um, one of the central goals of Freire's work is to establish an educational framework in which education is liberating and transformative. Transformation is a word that um, uh, appears time and time again in his work. And in fact... The, you talked about reflection and the pur- part of the purpose of reflection is to instigate this transformation, but he also talks about reflection being insufficient for transformation, right? Yeah, yeah. And can you talk a little bit more about yeah, this? this is this is another thing that I love it because it's the connection between reflection and action. So if you if you reflect but you don't act, then it's it's like you're failing to yourself and you're failing to your colleagues and and that's a, a very beautiful idea in his work that is the idea of solidarity right so education should be based on solidarity so as soon as i understand oppression i should feel the urge to act on that oppression to change that reality and sometimes well and please don't get me wrong i do understand developing knowledge for the sake of knowledge but Becoming knowledgeable is not the same of having an education or being educated, at least from that perspective. So education should be to put knowledge at the service of society at large. And then the idea of social justice should be central to the process of education. We should not allow people to take the opportunities of the ones who have no access and we need to see at least i try i try to do that as a as an educator myself wh- what actions i can take to improve access of the population to to the academia itself right so action is a very central idea in paulus freire's work it's a reflection for action right and this combination of reflection and action is what he refers to as praxis this is yes. the, this is the praxis the outcome of a a full, a complete human being who is reflected and acts towards the, the dissolution of the structures of oppression in society yeah. and in their world. And, and this, this has, it, it, it may be perceived as a kind of theoretical or utopian perspective, but that, uh, we have some examples of medical schools in my, in my context that they will take students to the healthcare system since week one to take care so to take care of people in favelas favelas that you have to have authorization of the drug dealers to get inside but because the community understands that the the presence of medical students in those spaces is relevant for them as a community and also for the students they create that safety for students to go to those places so when you understand that knowledge is only the first step towards transforming your reality then you have to put the knowledge at the service of someone else and then you take at least in medicine you should take the medical school as close as possible to the society and to the healthcare system since the beginning so if you want medical students to understand that that's that social justice is at the basis of their social contract you need to allow them opportunities to, to to see how that happens and to make it happen by themselves right so there are practical implications when you understand education as a process of transformation based on on action because then you have to look back at your curriculum and say am i creating the opportunities for the students to live 
that transformation, to implement that transformation while they are here with us. That, yeah. that makes perfect sense, actually, and it does make perfect sense even in our society where uh, we don't have this issue of having to get permission from a cartel or these imbalances are not so uh, so strong, perhaps. But still, we have seen this during the pandemic, right? We have seen that there is a very hard time for us to talk to society. There is a very strong polarization with or against uh, scientists, researchers, academics in general. And perhaps this is because also the way we have been talking to people was talking to people and not talking with people. Yeah. And this is at all level. I mean, mathematics is about, in part, developing knowledge for the sake of knowledge, to understand, to get a better uh, clarity on this abstract language and abstract word that sometimes can be applied, sometimes not. But this doesn't mean that it cannot be put at the service of society not in the sense of application, but even just to reach out to show that that mathematics is for everyone. You can do it. It's just putting in the effort that trains you to try and abstract from problems and see them from the outside. That sometimes it could be one way to empower, empower you to look at your situation from the outside. Just being able to, getting used to abstract away from a problem means also that you might get used to, even though it takes energy, to look at your problems from away. But imagine that beauty is also part of being free, right? Yeah. Mathematics is is beautiful for the people who learn mathematics. It it becomes beautiful, and and serving society is also showing the beauty of those basic conceptualizations of life or processes. So I think that if you keep your mind open about what academia can provide to society, it's also to make the effort on how to frame the knowledge that you have in a way that's meaningful for this large group of people. And it's not about it's not only about communicating what you're doing, because most of the time when we engage that conversation, people will talk about, yeah, we need to show society what we're doing. Yeah, we, we do need to be accountable. I agree. But we can also frame the knowledge that we have developed in a way that's meaningful for that group. So it's also a matter of taking the perspective of the other, right? It's looking at society, understanding these things that I'm doing, how, how other people in other fields, they will relate to that. I'm not sure if we make that effort already. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. When I meant to start talking with people, I, that's exactly what yeah. I wanted uh, what I had in mind. So having a dialogue that doesn't start from us and what we do, but start from uh, looking at it together. If I tell you this, what do you see? Yeah. And what do you yeah. think can happen? There's having the answer not come from me, but come from uh, a discussion, like what we are doing now. Yes. Do you think mathematics in a, in a Western university is open to having its curriculum content co-created with students? That's a very good question. I think not yet. But I think we are getting there, at least in some places. And, for example, for the master courses, we have some that are discussed with the students. But uh, the, the road is long to get there. And for some things, I don't even know yet if I agree. Like for the basics, perhaps it's something where uh, I think retaining a bit of control on the direction is good. But uh, I, I disagree on teaching it to the student. I still agree that the, given the basic knowledge that you need, the direction you have to take, and the way you, you go there, I think that should be done with the students and not to the students. I think one of the challenges that transformative participation, if you want to achieve transformative participation, is not easy 
because it's a process for everyone involved. It is a process for... So if you are in the position of power, you need to let go power, which is always a challenge. And mm -hmm. you are in the, if you are in the position of, of not having the power, you, you need to prepare yourself to get the power and to be able to use the power in a meaningful way. And this is something that does not happen in one month. So if you want to have students participating and having transformative participation, we need to learn together how to be in that space with them, right? Because yeah. we are not there, they are not there. We, we could not expect that we do, we'll do like this and then the students will be, okay, I'm here, I'm ready to engage with the co-construction of the curriculum. It's, it's not going to be like that because we, never, we have never done that before. So I think it will be a learning process based on being open and humble. I think. So mm -hmm. a very, very practical question. Yep. How do we do this? So are there spaces at the university, not this university per se, at any space, to do this? Do we have meaningful occasions with purpose to create this common framework for this transformative participation and co-creation? There is an example from Germany. The first course on ecological engineer was created in Germany and it started as an elective organized by a group of students and became a course some years later which is beautiful, right? You have these ecological movements starting and the students got together and, you know, we're, we could do different. Uh, right now we have this topic of planetary health in, 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 our, in, in the OMCG and there is a group of students, I'm, I'm trying to work with them and together, so we have uh, now two doctors and three students and we are, to, we are trying to understand what this new curriculum look like. Because some of those students, they have more knowledge than us. They are more engaged than us. And if we want to have social impact, we need to have them on board. So I think that you can start with those small, not, well, they can become a course in the end. But you have to start allowing that space to happen in which students and teachers will have this open conversation with the support of the institution to move on. Does it make sense, Tassos? I think so. I like what you say. I appreciate what you describe. I guess I'm also thinking very concretely. I'm a listener. I'm listening to what you say and I'm thinking, this sounds great. I want to participate. Where do I go? What do I do? Is there anything I can read? Is there anything I can inform myself with in order to start this? What is my first step? I guess that's yeah. what I'm wondering. I, I, so I would start... Yeah, that's a very good question. But I would start, you, you need to reform a little bit the way you think. That I, I, I was telling you before, like, I, I knew the idea of Paulo Freire, but I did not know his work. So I, I'm giving this lecture. I had just finished medical school, my medical training, and I'm giving this lecture to students every day in the in the uh, late afternoon. And this, this Marcello comes to me and say, Marco, do you know Paulo Freire? And I, I have heard about him. Okay, here is a book for you. And he gave me the Pedagogy of Freedom book. It was the first book of Paulo Freire that I read. And it was the gift of a student. And he said to me, because you are doing a lot of stuff that is written in that book, but I was doing some stuff. I, I always am in the game of engaging students in, the in, in a participatory way. 
But then when I started reading Paulo Freire's work, I said, okay, there is an intention behind it. It's not just intuition. There is an intention. There is a sense of purpose. And I tried to see my pedagogical actions in a very different way because I tried to always search for the why and the purpose. Why I'm using that methodology? Why I'm using that process? So that's a very personal movement. At the systemic movement, I think that we need... I was surprised here, for instance, when students' students' participation in the process at the university here, they, they have voice. But if you go to situations in Brazil that students vote for the dean, they vote for the, 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 the vice dean, and in the Brazilian Congress for uh, Medical Education, one-fourth of the time is for students to talk. So they are talking all the time. So we are we are all the time in contact with them. So I think we, we can, if we want students to participate in society, and if education is a representation of that society, and we, if we want doctors to be able to fight for a good healthcare system in the future, they need to learn how to engage with those conversations already in medical school. And then I'm not talking about only a minority of students who engage. We need to create opportunities for those students to engage in those conversations if we want them to keep engaged with those conversations after they leave uh, medical school. So I think there is a, it's a very concrete step how to create educational activities that are about increasing the participation of students and, and helping them or supporting them in becoming transformative participants, right? So you have a personal thing to do, you have a systemic thing to do, I think, as, as a first step. That's how I would frame it. And do you have some hint for us or something to keep in mind if we want to implement this? Because if I think about... Uh, what I'm trying to do to involve my students with my courses, then uh, I still find it very hard to reach, if not all, at least a big chunk of them. There is always a, a, a part of them that is very engaged, but there are many that I'm losing still. Yeah. And can I add to this question or some context to this question? Um, it often seems the that the context of education that is so focused on practices and standardization and efficiency and all of these other um, structural matters is such a powerful force or such a powerful context, I should say, around our education that it often is difficult to reestablish or to reconnect this context within a certain course or within a a certain semester, etc. So all, all the more important to ask this question. I think that one of the challenges that we have is that when you are feeling oppressed by anything, you detach because that's a, that's the most used coping mechanism. So you have to detach from yourself, you have to detach from the process, and if you're perceiving education as oppressive, and I, I saw that I do not know how many times, you enter the classroom, you don't have participation. You are in a clinical round in the hospital and you don't have participation. You ask questions, questions are understood as oppression because you are being oppressed. So even when, so I think that things that you can do, at least from my perspective, and now I'm not talking about Paulo Freire anymore, I'm talking about Marco. I like to make myself vulnerable for the students because that creates engagement. When I tell a story or when I share my vulnerabilities with them, I'm letting go power, I'm giving power to them because they will be in a position that they can hurt me. And then they will see, oh, what what I'm going to do with that? This is a person who is trying to connect. 
and then they will take care of me and I will take care of them and then the relationship changes. But I think that the big challenge that we have right now is a big fragmentation of all the learning process, right? Mm -hmm. So you are the Monday morning teacher and the other is the Tuesday afternoon teacher and you, you have no time or space or opportunity to create that relationship because to build trust with someone who is feeling oppressed to build trust with that person takes time. So you need to have moments in your curriculum that you can slow down, that you can connect, that you can create a sense of community just to recover from that oppressive experience that universities can, can be. Every time in my life that students really felt comfortable to talk to me, and that happened in Brazil, that happened in Portugal, that happened here, the first thing is, can I trust you? And when they answer, yes, we can, then it comes. It's terrible. We have assessments every week or every two weeks. And that's the kind of feedback that we have. We face uh, social unsafety. We have harassment. We find racism. So all those things are, are, are going on. And they don't have a space uh, to talk about it. So I think if we want to change that reality, we need to pay attention to that to understand that this is a group of people who are feeling oppressed. The challenge is we are all feeling that way, right? If you talk <laughs> to teachers, I have this workload, I have a lot of things to do, and I have to cope with those mechanisms. So it's students feeling oppressed on one side, staff feeling oppressed on the other side, and we're trying to find each other in the middle. It's it's quite hard. Yeah. And also takes uh, some uh, serious amount of energy. Yes, and time. Yeah, it's, it seems that um, an important part of Freire's uh, framework for education and critical pedagogy is this drive to always be informed about the conditions in which you live, that, that yeah. what, what we might call the oppression that you are, you are suffering and that that other people are. As I was cycling to this recording just a couple of hours ago, and I was thinking that Actually, I would be very curious to know what Pilo Freire would say about this new discussion about generative AI in education and its in its role to transform and its role to oppress. Do you have any thoughts? <laughs> That's a very interesting question. I have to reflect a little bit on that one because he was... So one, in the Pedagogy of Freedom, he says that you should you should share power, but you should not give up your responsibility as a teacher, right? So you do have a responsibility as a teacher. And when I, when I see uh, not only AI, but technological developments, there is a, this wonderful, it's just a tool, right? It, it does not, it's not ethical or unethical in itself. The use you make of it is, is, is more relevant than anything else. So I think that, as I will say something, so for an, as a non-native sp uh, speaking uh, person, I, I'm, not, I'm not an English native speaker. So for me to learn how to write in English and most of my communication, written communications in English was very difficult because at that point I did not have money to pay for someone to, to, to check my texts. And then now we have ChatGPT or DeepL, they can give you feedback on your text like this in 30 seconds, 10 seconds. So someone in the Amazon, in a very remote area in Brazil with access to internet, 
can learn a lot of things and can get a lot of feedback. So there is a there is a side of it that is related to make knowledge more accessible, to make those tools. There is the other side of it that most of it is based on on texts that were produced in English. So there will be a very uh, a process of exclusion coming together with that. We are losing in 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 Latin America. We used to have more than 2000 different languages now we less than we have less than 200 so we are losing all that capacity to produce knowledge in different ways so when i see those mechanisms of ai i i do hope that we'll be able to take advantage of the good side that is increasing access to people to different conversations without losing track of those minority groups that will be again shut down by those mechanisms and yeah so i think paulo freire would be very reflective on that and not having a simple answer like it's good or it's bad let's use or not use i think the sense of purpose is the most important thing right yeah no i think it's an interesting um i think it's been interesting to note the conversations around ai and usually again um the the most frequently expressed opinions have been on structural matters how should we rephrase exercises so that students cannot cheat how do we need to teach people how to write anymore since somebody else or something else can write for them and we cannot evaluate we go back to pen and paper exams in person all of this kind of stuff, rather than... But then uh, my question for us will be, why do students ch- cheat? Yeah. That, that, that's the question that we have to answer. It's not how they're going to do that. It's yeah. why, why they're doing that. Why the assessment is so meaningless right now for most of the students that the only thing they want is to get the grade and move on. That, that's on us. That's not on them. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's the way I see it. No, this is exactly that, the, the way I us. think about it, too. I agree. That's on us. I think it's a really hard... So if we talk about reflection, this is a really difficult corner to find an entire educational system to be in where you realize that you've been moving towards a corner, as I said, where suddenly you have no space to maneuver except backwards before you can move forward. And I think it's a difficult and uncomfortable place to be and largely why we keep having these discussions about methodological issues I, I think that we do not take advantage of the opportunities that we have to give feedback to students because feedback is a way of creating a relationship of uh, exchanging not only knowledge but also the process of becoming that is related to education in general and because we, we focus too much on the grade and the grade as the mechanisms, uh, the, mechan- the main mechanism for feedback, we don't have those conversations. And when we do have them, it's like one sentence or two sentences or five minutes. And if I was a student, I would do the same. Because who cares about one sentence? One sentence is going to change my behavior? Are you expecting that one paragraph will have enough information for me to change who I am or who I want to become? Is, is this a real conversation? But then we have like hundreds of feedbacks to give and the maximum thing that you can give a paragraph. So the system does not work and we know that, right? But we keep engaged with that. And that for me is a very oppressive when you need to keep engaged with a system 
that does not make sense and does not make sense to the students and sometimes does not, or most of the time, at least for me, does not make sense to me as well. So I think this is the real conversation. So I, I do like the topic of AI, but the real conversation for me is, you know, the sense of purpose. Why we are giving feedback to students? Oh, because we believe that feedback is transformative. Okay, so what feedback needs to have to be transformative? Oh, maybe one paragraph is not going to change the life of anyone, right? Like every change, this change is, it's hard also because it brings us on an uncertainty. So we don't know how to change it. We don't know what is going to work. Everything is uncertain and uncertainty is scary. Yes. And, uh, and then I'm stuck because how can I make this change happen? if I am moving the system in uncertain waters. So let's try to be realistic, right? Which is for me always a challenge because I am, I'm a kind of dreamer, so I, I can go everywhere. <laughs> but the thing is, uh, you can change your context, right? I remember I, I, I decided to create a simulation course to talk about emotional development of students. That was a decision that I made. I was responsible for the training in emergency medicine, and I had that space. And the first thing that I said, it's not going to be graded. We will have an activity, and there will be no grades. But I will, I will make it meaningful for the students. So I did a needs assessment with students in terms of emotional development. What, what's going on? So I had several conversations for one year. Then I sat together with a group of actors and other teachers, and we created the activity. And the whole focus was on emotional, uh, the, 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 the emotional aspect of the medical practice. And we planned the activity to take two hours, but it would take five, because the students would not allow us to leave. They were too engaged. So we were trying to get to an end and they were saying, no, no, let's keep going. I have more to say. I have more to share. I want to know more about it. So it was very different kind of problem. And all the sessions were based on feedback and were open. But also the learning objectives that I had for the day would be open. So I had several learning objectives that I could engage with. But the students would decide what would be the topic after the simulated setting with professional actors and all the emotional charge, that will, that, that will be open for them. And it's still working there, and it's going very well. And we implemented in other parts of the world. But what I want to, the point that I want to make, one day the dean came to see the, the activity. Because the students were talking and they were loving it and it became a thing inside the faculty. And then the dean came to have a session and he had a terrible reaction. That was back in Brazil 15 years ago. He said, it's impossible to... So in the middle of the session, he started shouting that it would be impossible to do what we are doing. But he was in the middle of the session and things were happening. But he was so disturbed by the learning activity itself, by the openness of the process, that was, he was terrified with the possibility of other teachers trying to do the same. So because we are really co-constructing something with the students, they would give feedback to me 
as their supervisor in the MERS department based on situations that we lived together. So it was really an open conversation. And he was terrified about that. So I think you can do that at a, in a personal level and you can achieve and you can deal with this uncertainty of being flexible with the learning objectives, of not knowing beforehand what students are going to take. I can assure you they will take good things out of it. <laughs> Just this openness is already a good thing to, to learn about. But if you want to move to the next step, then it needs to be a systemic conversation. It, it will not be based on us changing the world. We need to be able to engage the whole faculty or the academia in a conversation like that, I think. And it's, it's not going to happen in the next years, I'm afraid. That's why we have that podcast, right? <laughs> 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 to create momentum. <laughs> So it's true that this is um, exactly the reason we have this podcast. It's it's funny. I was I was uh, uh, I was laughing at a lot of the things, or I was smiling at myself at a lot of things you were saying because we have covered a lot of them in the podcast. We in fact started the entire podcast with the question, "What's the point of education?" And I think this is something that uh, Marcello and I talked about revisiting and uh, maybe shining new light on this topic at a new at another time. Um, I also wanted to say that, uh, Marco, it's always a joy to talk with you. It's always um, uh, very inspiring. It's always very, uh, it opens my heart. And um, I think it might be the case that you're going to be joining us at a, at a book club event that we have in a couple of weeks on a book by one of um, um, uh, Freire's fans, I, perhaps I can say, uh, Bell Hooks and her work on education, uh, specifically the book Teaching to Transgress. Um, so if you would like to meet Marco and talk to him more about critical education and the work of, the, uh, of education of love and uh, all of the uh, ideas that Bell Hooks had on transformative education. Uh, join us on the 2nd of November. I'll put a link in the description of the podcast episode. Um, Marco, thank you so much for talking with us. Yeah, I want to show you it. Thanking you. It was a pleasure. And it's awesome to see your enthusiasm when everything you said resonated a lot to me, even though sometimes I'm scared to think that how things could be changed and if we could change them. But uh, it's really nice that at least these conversations are happening. And perhaps, in not next year, but in a few years from now, we can start a systemic change or make this happen. Who knows? But uh, I see it also in many of my colleagues that things are changing in that direction, that we like the engagement with the students, that we like to learn from the students and with the students. So uh, I'm hopeful that actually we are moving in the right direction. Yeah, so well. uh, th thank you very much for, for this. It, it, for me, it's always a pleasure to to have conversations around that topic of purpose of education and what education uh, really means. And I learned a lot from you and I will be in the book club. It will be an amazing opportunity to, to keep that conversation going. Thank you very much. So, thank you all very much. Thank Tassos for having me here and thanks everybody for listening. And we hopefully we will have you at the next episode. This podcast was a production of the University of Groningen.